But, you know, you got to go where the opportunity is. And, and there are, even in dying communities, you know, for lack of a better word, just to, to describe them that way, like, you know, they're, you know, they're dying off. Industry's left. There's uh, leadership is can't attract something else to come in there. Job, you know, people got to go where work is. They, you know, even in those areas, there are opportunities. You just have to know that opportunity extremely well. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build, preserve, and grow your wealth on Main Street using real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Boat, and today our guest is Michael Carr. Today, we're digging into Michael's lessons from the Great Recession. Michael is a 28-year veteran of the real estate space. He was very heavily involved during the Great Recession, through the Great Recession, repositioning, reselling, kind of auctioning, off properties that were repossessed. And we're digging into his lessons, both as a real estate investor himself and knowing his network of investors who succeeded prior to and in the wake of the Great Recession as real estate investors. We're pulling out his key lessons to building wealth and preserving wealth through real estate investing and preparing for potentially rocky times, which happen no matter what, right? Markets go up and down. How can we prepare for short-term pain in the pursuit of long-term gain, if you will? So we're digging into a lot of great lessons in this one from a real estate veteran who has a lot of very detailed knowledge through the Great Recession experience, or as he as he calls it, the mortgage debacle. We're going to dig into that today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on commercial, multifamily, and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, and schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Michael Carr. Without any further ado, here we go. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do in real estate? Yeah, Taylor, thank you for having me on. So I am a real estate broker. My brand identifier is the Abundant Life Broker. We can talk a little bit about that if you want to later in the show. But I started off out of high school, had a chance to be an engineer, worked with a company in high school as a drafter back when drafting was a two-year associate's degree. I think you can buy it as an app now for like 99 cents. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't want to be an engineer. I wanted to be an auctioneer. I told my mom that. She cried said I'd starve to death. Uh, we laugh about that now. But I started off as a circuit auctioneer and the guy that trained me said, uh, we, we sold cars and he said, get your real estate license and you can make a little extra money selling a farm sale or something like that on the side. I did that and then I opened a brokerage in 2000, but I still just use that brokerage to buy and sell my own properties and help out my family and to call a sale like a farm sale or something like that as a contract auctioneer. And uh, then in 2006, just pre the mortgage debacle, the collapse there, the Great Recession, they called it, I teamed up with a company out of Irvine, California, and we went after the Bear Stearns residential portfolio and, and landed most of it and sold most of it. I ended up licensed in 30 states as a real estate broker and auctioneer. 
and sold more, ended up in that time selling more properties than any individual. And, and now I'm well over 78,000 transactions in residential market. But my, you know, good auctioneers are always working themselves out of a job. So I came back to my hometown <laughs> north of Atlanta in the suburbs. I'm about 45 minutes northeast of the city and I bought a piece of property. And the lady that I worked with, we got along really good. She had the listing and she said, hey, let, why don't we team up and open up a brokerage here in town? And I said, if you'll help me, and we'll do it. And I did. And uh, now we've got 23 agents. We've got an office in Orlando, an office in Atlanta, an office in Knoxville, and going to launch an, launch an office in Greenville, South Carolina by the end of the year. So all based around residential real estate. Awesome. You've got a, quite a lot going on. As far as your investing experience, when exactly did you get started? Because you have you're not just a, a veteran, you know, involved in the in the real estate broker space, but also veteran investor in your own right. Yeah, I um, bought my first house in 1994, and um, I couldn't get a bank to to lend me the money. Um, I was an entrepreneur, and you know, and. Uh, self-employed and I had some tax returns, but I wasn't really making any money. I think the first year as an auctioneer, I made like seven grand or something. And it looked like mom might be right for a minute. And um, so, you know, I'm going to try to buy this residential house. Nobody would touch me. In fact, I went into a Wachovia, if anybody remembers the old Wachovia banks. And I went in there and I had $5,000 saved up and I asked them for a $5,000 loan to help establish some credit. And they told me no. And I, it blew my mind. I'm like, okay, well, give me my $5,000. And I went down the street to a bank and they took my $5,000 and gave me a $10,000 unsecured line of credit. So, you know, it's, when it comes to finance, you got to, you got to keep asking until you get the answer that you want. Right. <laughs> so I kept asking guys around me, like, how am I going to buy this house? How am I going to buy this house? And a man that I did some business with said, why don't you go see my brother? And I did. And so I knock on this guy's door. He's at his office and he, at the time, he was uh, 66 years old, and uh, I told him what I wanted. I said, hey, look, bank won't touch me. I got 10% down. I want you to buy this house for me. I'll pay you off in five years. And um, he said, uh, I'll do it. He said, I only want to finance it for five years. I want 20% down, and it's 12% interest. And I said, no, I'm going to give you 10. You're going to am it for 30. But if I don't pay you off in five, then you can keep whatever I paid you. And he looked at me, and he went, Okay, I'll do it. If my bro if my son thinks it's worth it. So I met his son out there. They didn't do an appraisal. I showed up with $7,500 and a cashier's check to the closing attorney. He wrote a personal check for the rest of it. I think the house was like $73,000. I still own that house today. I've leveraged it to the hilt about six times. I think I still owe 70000 on it, actually. <laughs> and so, but then I took that and I, you know, got a line of credit on against it, a second mortgage against it, and I bought my next house. And I fixed it up. We lived there as a family. My oldest daughter was born when we lived there. And then did the same thing again. Wash, rinse, repeat. About two years, I got uh, some equity built up in it, and I got another line of credit. And then I used both lines of credit to build the next house. And then it just I just kept leapfrogging from there. And then it got to where I could do two a year and I could do four a year. And so just continued to grow from there. That's awesome. That's great. And just kept moving forward. I'd like to dig in today. I mean, there's so much that we could talk about, but I'd like to dig into lessons that you took away from your experience being involved with, as you, as you put it, the mortgage debacle, but uh, you know, the great recession and you were very heavily involved with an institutional aspect 
of kind of getting us through the the great recession lessons that you took away from that or observations that you had and then maybe drawing some parallels to where we stand you know now in the end of 2022 looking at the beginning of 2023 everybody's got these concerns are you know, we heading toward the uh next great recession specifically real estate related crash so let's start with your experience you know working through that debacle as you put it out like i like that yeah. Well, I was was one of the fortunate ones because being trained in what I did, it was a need at the time that, you know, banks do not use auctioneers if they can help it. They don't want them. They want to get super retail if they can and get as much back as they possibly can. Understand that. But at the time, especially by the time we hit 2009, there was just not enough people to buy houses that were on the market. I mean, that people were and people, some of your listeners will remember it for sure. They, you know, they, we called them uh, we called them graveyards, you know, they would have the sewer lines in and the curbing and the gutters and the, and the PVC pipes, you know, for the clean out drains and everything. And they'd just be pastures of them. And you'd be like, man, live. And, you know, the biggest takeaway from all of that, though, was that people were still trading houses. Uh, and there were people who were very smart about the way they did it. You know, I sold properties to a lot of conglomerates that were smart enough to say, hey, these houses were worth 385000 last year, and they were brand new, and I'm buying them now for dollars $125,000. That's a steal. And they were buying them like crazy. And, uh, you know, we would go to these ballrooms and have 400 houses to auction off, and we'd sell nearly every one of them. It was, it, it, everybody was buying. I even sold uh, to um, Forrest Lucas the, of the, you know, the Indiana Colts fame, you know. I mean, he showed up in Phoenix, Arizona and bought a, a eight or nine million dollars worth of stuff. <laughs> like it was crazy. So, but what it, what I learned was that it, uh, you know, what, what is a valuable lesson in, in investing in real estate, it's a time thing. If you've got the ability to hold it, it's always going to be worth more. And in fact, I even parted ways with a CPA for, that I'd had for years because he was totally convinced that we had reached some kind of top of the market pre, you know, Great Recession, and that we would never see those prices again. And anybody that thought that back then are really sticker shocked now when, you know, houses are double that, you know, peak at that time. So the the age old graph that that sticks like like the Bible in in the United States real estate is that they're gonna it's gonna go up and it's gonna dip at times. There's going to be market corrections we're going to go from. And those are your times. Those are your opportunities to grab them. But the the pre it always goes higher than the previous high. And it except for in 2009 and 10, it never goes below the previous low. So it's still a graph that moves up into the right. And so, you know, that's why I am a staunch believer in investing in real estate, especially if somebody else will pay that payment for you. Uh, multifamily houses, single family residences, light commercial has been all what I've invested in over the years because all I got to do now is manage it. And that is a portion of the the craft that people are scared of or they don't like. But when you get a comfort level with that, it's still the greatest investment that anybody can do. Even if all they do is buy the home they live in, it's the greatest investment, in my opinion. So that that's great perspective. I think that caveat of if you've got the ability to hold is is key because that's what so many people got in trouble with prior to the Great Recession or leading into the Great Recession is they were making that assumption of it's just going to keep going up because it had for the past couple of years, but they forgot to prepare themselves for an eventual 
downturn and their debt led to all kinds of problems for it for many people notes getting called all that kind of a thing so how do you balance that thought about preparing for short-term turmoil or debacles if you will and also minding the long-term potential of real estate investments how do you balance those two things and not get too focused on one versus the other uh, that's actually a great great question you got to have reserves that, that's really what it boils down to what comfort level of reserve is for everybody is different I, you know and i think i learned accidentally learned this from the guy that the owner financed the first house because when the conversation was over and i was going to leave his office he says to me well i got to go to the bank now and borrow a quarter of a million dollars to pay my property tax and he said it like a joke and this guy was like worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I assume that the reason why is because he had already extended himself buying other stuff, right? And he had projects that didn't turn. And of course, being young, I had not learned yet about, you know, the expanse and, and the, the accordion style of of accounting and, and investing that you got to do. You got to stretch. You got to be contrary to the market is what another investor told me a long time ago. And you do need to reach for as much as you possibly can. But, you know, if if you can't afford the boat payment at the end of the month, you bought too much boat, you know. So I'm like, you know, I've got I, I like 20 percent okay, of what it's going to take <clears throat> for you to be able to hold that property, whether that's a single family or a multifamily. I also like loan to value ratios. I don't like to go over 50% anymore. If you've got young investors listening here and you're going to go out on your own and you're going to do this, you're probably odds are not going to be able to play with that kind of ratio, but that kind of ratio should be your goal. And what you want to do is get to get yourself in a position. Yeah, you might end up, I've done it, having to get a line of credit to fix a house or, you know, to, to do some repairs. HVAC goes out, you know, and that $10,000 line of credit that I had, that I told you about, um, you know, at when Wachovia wouldn't give me the loan, that was very valuable. And there were times it was maxed out and then I would pay it down as fast as possible for the next, you know, unseen thing that was going to come up. Uh, so, I, you know, obviously in my encouragement of everybody buying real estate, realize that that loan to value ratio might have to be 100%, especially if it's your own home. It might be a FHA loan at three and a half percent. It might be a conventional at any price range, but shoot to where you're looking at in your investments, a 50% loan to value ratio. A banker might tell you you could go to 70, but the bankers aren't usually there helping you. They're usually there demanding their money. So, so they can say those ratios if they want. Oh, you'll be safe there. But will you? And I like, I, I really like 50%. So now when I borrow borrow money to buy other property maybe i leverage a piece to buy another piece i still try to hold on to that ratio so then i'm not in a tight i'm not stressed out you know i'm not worried that payments you know if rental market dries up a little bit which i don't think it will for a minute by the way then you've still got ability to hold on to that property so so we were uh before we started recording we talked a little bit about various markets and and the long-term potential or lack of potential. And we were chatting about a, a vacation home that you have in rural yeah. Virginia, uh, chatting yeah. about that a little bit. And, and some of the areas of rural Virginia in particular that were formerly industrialized several decades ago, and those industries have died off. And those 
frankly, those cities have kind of fallen apart. No jobs, real estate values have really stagnated or fallen precipitously. Now, real estate in general, in the long term, you know, if people are living there, there's industry, all that kind of a thing has great appreciation potential. Obviously, I'm, you know, all on board with that. But how do you identify or think about identifying those markets where, just to continue with the the example of certain parts of rural Virginia where the industries have left and real estate kind of fell apart, how do you balance that and, and look for that more detailed value, like long term value opportunity as far as like the market goes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Stay away from them. That's, that's, uh, and that's nothing against the cities, but you know you got to go where the opportunity is, and and there are even in dying communities, you know, for lack of a better word, just to, to describe them that way. Like you know they're you know they're dying off. Industries left. There's uh, leadership is can't attract something else to come in there. Job, you know people got to go where work is. They you know even in those areas there are opportunities. You just have to know that opportunity extremely well. I buy in, in the Atlanta marketplace because we have seen this massive amount of growth uh, with the movie industry and the music industry growing like it has. But I go to a, like a place like Galax and I'm still buying. It's not a town that's dying, actually. It's a town that's growing. It's not growing like towns in like Jefferson, where I live now, or Lawrenceville or Swanee or Buford or some of those suburbs of Atlanta, but yet there is still a, a great deal of growth going on in Galax. It's a very re- well-run city and um, best that I can tell. And so it was a good, safe investment. It was one, though, that I would have bought no matter what because it had. It was one of the first properties I've ever bought that had a personal bent to it for me. I just wanted it. You know what? It's what it boiled down to. I was like, you know, it fit uh, exactly what we were looking for. So had that been in a different town, I probably still would have bought it. And, you know, it's just that when you're investing in areas like that that are on a decline, you want to watch them until they start on a on a trajectory up, right, before you really start investing in them, unless you've got the money to change the tide, which very few of us do, right? Some people do. Uh, that people I've seen people make entire residential markets. You know, when I was in high school, the, the town that I grew up in was called Hog Mountain. That'll tell you how rural it was, Hog Mountain. <laughs> And so there was like nobody. There was like two subdivisions and two convenience stores. We had to drive 45 minutes to go to the grocery store. Mama only did it every other week. And so it was like out there. And then when I was in high school, you know, this guy tells me, he's like, buy all the property you can off of Jim Moore Road. And I'm like, why? I'm like, we, we used to go pick up, people would throw their trash out there. And then we as kids would go out there with our BB guns and pull the glass bottles at them and shoot them and bust them on Jim Moore Road. I'm like, they, like nobody even go, you'd never even see a car. And he goes, no, 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 no. These German investors are buying everything up up there. They're going to make a town. And I'm like, I still didn't believe it. And I woke up one day and I'm driving through there and they've got subdivision, subdivision, subdivision. And they made an area called Hamilton Mill. Freddie Couples came and designed the golf course. So, you know, those were situations where people had the money, the wherewithal to change a tide. If you don't have that and you're buying your first property or your second property, your 10th property, and you're like just looking for that opportunity, you want to go where you can see a change has already happened. Real estate investor, one of the richest I've ever known, he told me, he said, Michael, I, I made the most money in my career paying too much for property right in the path of growth. So you you might want to you know look at that if you're nitpicking like you're saying, hey, I, I can only afford one house this year and it's in this price range, where am I going to buy it? 
you want to go to those areas that you see this growth and and then i add to that the, the reason to buy is i will pay full-on super retail for a property an investment property if it's an easy step in right so number one back in the day that caused the mortgage debacle i could get 100 percent financing on a, a property with no money down right 100 percent stated income and i got a commission back on it i can't tell you how many houses i bought like I, I don't know, <laughs> dozens right because it was free to me i was just like home bank was the big deal back then one of the first ones to go under when it all when it all come crashing down they were a leader on the LIBOR index that caused a lot of that, you know, but it fit my model. Easy step in. I was going to step in. If it's owner financing, I'll pay super retail for it. It's off the books till I do my tax return. The banker don't know about it. Doesn't affect my P&L. I'll buy it all day long, all day long. You know, now if I got to cough up cash, it better come at a deep discount because we only got limited amount of cash, right? And then I'm going to have to go back in there, refinance it after I clean it up. I can't get as good a loan because I don't live in it, right? So I, I try to follow those rules. So it doesn't matter to me if it's Detroit. There's good areas of Detroit. They, they, you know, you can. There are areas that are in revitalization in Detroit, but you can't go by that's allowed to lay that blanket over all of Detroit, right? You got to know your area, and all of them have it. And and the other thing about residential real estate that we got to know before we run out of time is that there is a massive residential shortage. And, you know, in the United States, it's huge. But like we didn't even keep up with the birth rate of how many houses we need in America. Then you've got migratory patterns like mass exoduses from the West uh, coming into the Midwest, coming all the way to the East Coast. You've got people coming out of the New England states headed south to, you know, those those better climated areas like Richmond, North Carolina, South Carolina, you know, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. They're not even necessarily going all the way to Florida anymore. You've got some coming up from Florida into the East Coast. So those migratory patterns also open up a lot of opportunity for people to be able to buy. Even even at this moment when when everybody's like, oh, yeah, it can't get any higher. Like they said back in 2006, prices can't get any higher and inflation is going to kill us and, and interest rates are going to kill us. They won't kill us, but they can't. They, they might slow us down. That's probably going to happen. But appreciation, nobody, none of the gurus that I read and pay attention to say that we will lose any appreciation on our houses, even though we may slow down how many are traded. Um, In in the the vein of of knowing your market, again, before we started recording, you were telling me about a 1031 exchange that you're kind of going through right now to to get some land. We are a little short on time. I don't know if you want to tell us about that real quick, just the general strategy there. I'll be there. brief. Yeah, I'll be brief. It's another strategic move to get to get rid of properties that are outlying from our other portfolio. So I'm selling off residential real, real estate that I've had, rental property that I've had for 20 years. And I'm 1031 tax exchanging that to developable property in the town that I live in for a long whole play i'm not gonna i'm I'm not gonna turn it over in a year or two years this is a long-term play it's a 20-year play because i'm taking the equity that i have in those i'm paying cash for the property and then using the 1031 tax exchange tool you know not to escape taxes but to put off paying the taxes until later on and it's a 20-year turn to just sit on for a minute yeah the the detailed strategy gets into really knowing your area down to what happened just right up the road understanding the yes. local government's goals and the, the potential appeal of this property and how the, the lines are changing and all that kind of a thing and really getting into the weeds, which I think 
is is a key lesson from this discussion really knowing your market and your particular strategy and how that you're you're playing along with the market with your strategy love all of it right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor the first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth income spending and everything else about your finances you can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Michael, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. I think I'm ready. You're right. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The very best probably would be I bought just out of, just coming out of about 2015, maybe 2013, it was 2013, I bought a mobile home park and I bought every house in the in that that mobile home area and it revitalized every one of them. They it was all permanent foundations and we went back in and gutted them and put in um you know really good subfloors, really good high traffic type of the lower flooring, new appliances, things like that. Made them into homes and not and totally clean and transform transform that whole area. We we maximize our rent in it. And we've got a real good community that's uh, that we've turned around. It's it's been the best I've done so far. Love it. Yeah. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst <laughs> investment you ever made? Well, l- listen, it's real estate, so r- worst is relative. But the only property and buying property for now coming on thirty years, twenty eight years. I have one town home. I did not do my research. I buy this property, and believe it or not, I paid like a hundred. I think I paid $109,000 for that property and uh, got a loan on it, you know, investment loan, had to put down 30000 I think is what I put down on it. Did not do my homework and it was, it, you had to go on a list to be able to rent the property. So now here I'm hung, homeowner association comes to me, you got to get rid of your tenant that I just put in there. So now I got to do that. Tenant tore it up on the way out a little bit, not bad, but you know, there's yet another thousand you got to throw at it, you know, and I put it up for sale, sat on it, had a holding cost, couldn't get rid of it. So I went back to the agent that stuck me with it to begin with and said, unstick me, find another me. And she did. And I ended up and the whole thing was said and done. I lost $10,000 nearly to the penny on that piece of property. What's ironic about that property is now it's worth 750 grand. <laughs> so had I held it, it would, we would, that might have been the answer to the first question. So, you know, the key to real estate is hold it. You know, if it's not worth what it, you think it should be right now, hold on to it. They're not making any more of it. So, Well, that also gets into doing your due due diligence and knowing what you're getting into ahead of time. Yes. It's kind of a tough lesson to learn, but would you have even bought it if, or if you had been able to rent it, if you, you know, were certain that you could, you would have held on to it, but you kind of discovered that caveat of you got to get on the waiting list and might not have bought it in the first place. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't have bought it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I would not have bought it. Uh, I had I done my research on that and you know, Research it. You don't for your listeners. Don't overanalyze, but be sure you've got those bases covered. And homeowners associations are one of the things you want to watch with a 
with a very fine tooth comb because a lot of them over the years have changed to where they don't allow any investment properties like that. In fact, they're writing in Airbnb language <laughs> now and, and VRBOs, you know, no, you can't use them for that, even if you live in them, which is ridiculous. So, you know, you be careful on those things too. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, do it, do it, do it, do it, you know, buy with a purpose, you know, don't, especially if you're getting started, if you haven't bought your own home yet, work on buying your own home. That's your first investment. And then use that investment as leverage for others. Do not try to time or play the market. Buy your real estate with a purpose. It's going to pay you dividends. And so I would say the best advice is do it. Don't, don't just study it. Nice. I love that. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah, the best place is michaelcarrealty.com. And that'll be the best place to find out a little bit more about what we're about and what we do. And uh, the website will tell you a whole lot about you know my past and my uh, expertise in real estate, what I'm doing now. So michaelcarrealty.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Special, special shout out to our YouTube subscriber audience. Thank you for joining us here on the video. I hope you all have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.